Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast series. I'm Kit Duval and I've worked with the festival director Chantal Edwards as guest curator of this year's podcast series. Each Thursday, across the next few months, we'll be releasing new episodes of the podcast, including wonderful discussions about writing, poetry, big ideas and social issues. In this week's episode, artist and cultural critic Gaylene Gould interviews debut author Paul Mendes about his novel Rainbow Milk a coming-of-age story that starts in the Midlands via Jamaica and follows excommunicated Jehovah's Witness Jesse McCarthy as he grapples with racism, the legacies of the Windrush and his sexuality. Join Paul and Gaylene for a fascinating discussion about the rich history of black British writing, representing the black country accent on the page and the intersections of identity alongside a wonderful reading from the novel. Welcome to Birmingham Literature Festival. I'm reviewer Gaylene Gould here with debut novelist Paul Mendes to talk about his book Rainbow Milk, which made this year's Observer top 10 debut list. Hi, Paul. Hello, Gaylene. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, good. Um, yeah, great to actually kind of meet you virtually. Um, I reviewed yes. this book for Front Row and uh, I was saying how like that can be quite onerous, you know, because you have to read a whole book and then hopefully like it. And I really loved it. So it's really wonderful to get to meet Good. you. So, so Rainbow Milk, it's a semi-autobiographical novel following the journey of a character called Jess McCarthy, who's a 19-year-old, uh, do fellowships Jehovah's Witness from West Bromwich. And we mm-hmm. follow him as he moves to London and explores his sexuality through prostitution, amongst other things, and through to becoming a burgeoning writer. So there's real shades of James Baldwin here, and Giovanni's room is indeed referenced in the novel. So tell us a bit how this story grew in you. Um, well, I have a different answer now to um, what I would have said in answer or in response a couple of weeks ago even because I've just reread Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, which was Baldwin's fourth novel, um, published in 1968, just after the start of his critical downturn, his um, unjust critical downturn, as far as I'm concerned, because I think his later novels are pretty much his best work. Um, but I read Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone when I was 20 years old. My um, trajectory was very different from Jesse's. Um, Jesse was disfellowshipped at 19, um, and then moved straight to London, whereas I was disfellowshipped at 17. Um, and, uh, when I was 19, moved to Kent to study an engineering degree at West Kent College, uh, partner college of Greenwich University. Um, I didn't stay on the degree course for very long. Um, I think I quit after about nine months, but in the summer of 2002, um, I was living with, um, some fellow students or photographer students, actually not engineering students. Um, and it was sort of my first time living away from home. It was the first time living with creative people. And one of them pushed, um, tell me how long the train's been gone into my hand. But it was the first time I'd ever read a book by a black author. It was the first time I'd ever read a book by a black queer author and, uh, by a black queer, uh, focalizing a black queer protagonist. Um, and it had a huge impact on me, but one which, um, I sort of put down, put to the side and forgot about. But it's only when reading it back now, 18 years later, that I realized just how much of an impact that book had on me um, in terms of my life choices, in terms of, you know, I studied acting very much like the protagonist, Leo Proudhammer, who um, 
studies acting with a method school and becomes a successful um, off-Broadway actor in New York. I became a waiter and sort of, you know, uh, expanded my sort of social kind of contacts, I suppose, and social environment through working in restaurants and sampling some different cuisines and um, just meeting, you know, a whole cast of different people. And of course, explored my sexuality. So Leo Proudhammer, the protagonist of um, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, is bisexual um, or identifies as bisexual. And I came out as bisexual, I think, a year after reading Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone. And so even just in terms of the um, the subjects uh, dealt with, but uh, also in terms of the way the book is written, in terms of the way Rainbow Mock is written, the um, different sort of um, devices I use uh, in telling the story, um, so much of it reflects back to that book. So I think it's just, it just goes to, to prove how important books are and reading is to a formative mind. Um, as I said, I, I put that book down, forgot about it, sort of five, ten years later, started reading other Baldwin novels, um, such as Giovanni's Room and Another Country, which I've referenced brief, briefly in Rainbow Milk, but I think the most important of his books to me was uh, tell me how long the train's been gone. That's a, it's a great answer, and also, like you were saying, it's a really it, it it really shows how novels and books work that they are a slow they have a slow transformative process on you, you know, exactly. um, and you really kind of get a sense of that in this novel that there is something that is kind there is a journey. There's a journey that's taken not just through the character, but you, you take us on as a kind of our, getting us to sample our own. Uh, journeys i guess so the book spans miles and time so it's predominantly set this century in the 2000s but it begins in the last uh, particularly the 1950s with the arrival of jesse's uh, ancestor norman alonso and his wife claudette from jamaica arriving in bilston in the west midlands so why was it important for you for the book to start there so what we think of as the windrush generation now they're dying off Sadly, you know, the, um, the, the Windrush itself or that famous disembarkation in June 1948 at Tilbury, uh, was, uh, 72 years ago now. And so many of those people are, are, have, have passed on. And I think it's, um, incredibly important for us to be retaining those stories and retaining that history. A lot of people from the Windrush generation, I'm, you know, when I say a lot of people, I'm only really talking um, about uh, from my grandparents' perspective. That's what I can know for sure. But they came to the UK to start a new life, um, to to leave behind uh, Jamaica and the Jamaican way of life, and to start a new way of life here in England, and one which um, they hoped would foster uh, new opportunities for their children and grandchildren. And, you know, it was all about looking forward rather than back. So when I asked my grandparents when they were alive about the past, they were very circumspect. They either said that they didn't remember or changed the subject. And I don't know whether that, you know, being um, a black British person who um, I kind of understand a certain sort of sensibility in terms of um, avoiding certain subjects because they're traumatic. So I'm kind of wondering whether that was the case with them, whether the, they were suffering trauma, so didn't want to sort of reflect back on their 
um, on their lives in the 50s, 60s, 70s, living as black people in the UK and being trailblazers in terms of, you know, being the first, uh, black people to, um, in huge numbers and all over the country live here amongst white working class people. You know, I grew up in the black country as well, born in the early 80s and suffered lots of racism. Um, and that's, you know, me being a third generation. Uh, immigrant. So I'm kind of wondering now, like, what did the first generation have to deal with? And we have examples in the fiction of, um, Andrea Levy, Sam Selvan, uh, George Lamming et al. But I think every generation needs to find out afresh what it was like to be a Jamaican or uh, Afro-Caribbean or African immigrant to the UK in the 1950s and 60s because it was just a completely different world. And it just seems like what we've seen happen this year in the United States, for example, and with Black Lives Matter sort of um, freshly at the top of the agenda all over the world, it does seem, unfortunately, that each generation needs to find out afresh why or, or you know, that that uh, white supremacy exists, that racism exists and is as strong and is, is as insidious as ever. Um, so, you know, just in terms of retrieving and rehabilitating the experience of people in the 1940s to 60s, so that we can learn from that and so that we can sort of see over two or three generations what has changed and what hasn't changed. It really just sort of does explain Norman's story in the 1950s really, I think, does um, explain a lot of what Jess's experience subsequently is 50 years later. Mm. And there's also something around just hearing you say that, respond to that. It's making me think about the way in which shame played a part in in both in all of those generations you know in that sense of like you were saying the characters who arrived in the 50s that there was some kind of uh, circumspect relationship to the past and was that to do with trauma uh, and, and was that to do with shame and there's something there's a kind of echo of that uh, that, that kind of shrouds the whole novel there's almost like a colonial shame you know that uh, all of the characters in a sense are experiencing yeah, which is quite quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, you know, Jamaica. In my research, I uh, discovered was um, in a really sort of bad state um, uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of prospects. You know, this is pre-independence. Nobody knew what was going to happen if Jamaica became independent from from um from Great Britain. It was sort of devastated by so many hurricanes as well over um the course of the uh nineteen forties and fifties. Uh, I think the nineteen forty four hurricane in particular was incredibly damaging. And that's something that Norman would have lived through and that's indeed something that Norman mentioned um that sort of devastated the crop of the island and it sort of put the economy back sort of five years. Rather like what we're going through now, I suppose, in terms of the coronavirus, but obviously, you know, Britain being a much more sort of advanced capitalist, I suppose, state. But Jamaica just had such uh, uh, an unenviable intersection of um, issues at that time that perhaps um, it did foster a sense of needing to escape in people. And because of the colonial education that Jamaican children uh, receive, you know, they look at Britain as being, you know, almost utopia or paradise, you know, um, the sort of Jane Austenization of um, of the, the British education system in the colonies 
fosters this kind of uh this feeling that you know the mother country is the place to to be um the person that you want to be and yeah i mean that just sort of makes the the disappointment that they uh found when they got here just even more profound really and i think because of the sort of situation of um this kind of colonial imposition and the education system that affects jesse and that affected me um you know i grew up in a very sort of white working class area the, the bnp were very sort of prominent uh in my area during uh the time that i was growing up um you've got this sort of toxic situation where you know thatcherism is kind of choking the black country of its livelihood the industries industries are being crushed the unions are being put down um people are out of work and people don't necessarily have the empowerment to change to find new industries and new um reasons to be and that then reflects back on the racism that i grew up receiving but at the same time um like i said at the top of the 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 uh, conversation my education was based almost entirely or actually entirely on um the writing of dead white men and as someone who was raised with the bible and someone who was you know very literate from a very young age and very interested in books and writing it again sort of adds to this sort of sense of shame of being actually a black person but if i'm not seeing black people writing anything um who do i think i am you know and so it's kind of very complex and sort of something that i'll probably be unpacking for a long time um but there's there is a sense of shame um that is imposed on us as black people um that we have to apologize for our blackness somehow that our blackness is somehow um if not wrong then then it it maybe is unhelpful to us let's say um and that it's something that we need to overcome before we can live and before we can um express ourselves creatively and and that's what i've tried to sort of expand on a little bit and and i think it, it that's again another great kind of way of framing Jesse's uh journey you know from uh the east the west midlands i say the east midlands because that's where i'm from and had a very <laughs> similar upbringing to yourselves right. in terms of you know what you describe is exactly what i which, which what i've experienced which is rarely rarely documented you know in in black fiction so that it's often this sense of kind of urban the urban center of london which is um uh, yeah, which basically kind of presides over the whole of the black experience. So I think there was something very special about you documenting that historic presence of black people in different parts of the country. Um, so let's speak a little bit more about that. I mean, you really, there's, there's lots of things that I think that for those people who aren't from, uh, the Midlands will be able to pick up and grasp. And one of those things is the delight in, uh, the language, the vernacular, um, and I think your your ear for for um, spoken language, spoken word generally. So that's I had to read lots of passages in your book out loud because the way in which the characters spoke that, and you've got you know from from people from West Midlands, from the Caribbean, from Australia, from uh, Europe, and you you capture it completely. You've got such a great ear for it, so. I wondered whether you could read something, uh, possibly that kind of helps the audience get a, get a sound, get a sense of that sound. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's probably no better place to read from than, I guess, the very, very beginning of the book. So yeah, the first section of the book is narrated in first person by Norman Alonso, who, um, as we've outlined, is a Jamaican immigrant to the UK. This is July the 20th, 1959. And he, just to give you a tiny bit of background, is a fit ex-boxer. He's now 33 years old. He has two infant children. Um, Robert, aged almost three, glory 10 months. Um, and he is at home looking after them, um, because he cannot work. He has, um, come across an unexpected illness, which has rendered him disabled. Yeah, that's what I sort of need to say by way of introduction. So, uh, July 20th, 1959. This the best summer since we come to England three years ago. It had, not had like Jamaica, but I don't feel a cloud past the sun today. And no rain has fall for a long time now. I stand on my front lawn and breathe. The bush are strong with plenty of fragrant rose. My son Robert loved to tatter around with the watering can that almost as big as him. I can hear how much water is pouring on each root. I don't know how he can't feel the cold water dribbling on his foot. Strong little man. He is going to be tall. Already is quite up to me knee. Gloria want to help, but she's too small. And I have to listen for her all the time in case I trip upon her as she scratch herself on the thorn. Not too much, son. I said to Robert when I can hear the water start to puddle. Move to the next one. Hello, little man. I'm you helping your dad water the garden. Mr. Pierce, my neighbor, met me jump as he walk up in part. Say hello to Mr. Pierce, Robert. Hello. He say all quiet. I say, good afternoon, Mr. Pierce. How are you today? Knowing he will just go on and on about his ailment. Oh, I ain't too bad, you know. Same old aches and pains. Me arthritis has been playing me up somewhat rotten, but I can't complain. Ethel ain't well herself with her legs. Call white till your lad's big enough to run down the shops the way. Anyway, it's a bit up for me in this eight. It's all right for you coming from the West Indies. Not really, I say. My body used to the cold now. I have hardly any sight left, but I know Mr. Pierce never leave his door without his flat cap, old work coat and boot. Though he must have retired from the gas work ten years ago. You must have heard all that's been happening down London with all them white defence league rallies. We was ever so sorry to see that painted them Cape England white or whatever it is on your door. Me and Ethel was talking about it the other night and we both agreed that we don't mind you being here at all. We're more the same, ain't we? White or coloured or not. I should not still be in this sun like what the doctor said, because my head start to throb and darkness falling on my eye, so I step closer to the house, into the shade. I can catch you on audio later and you can read it, the whole thing to me. Sounds amazing, amazing. But there is something <laughs> though about, you know, you never hear, it's rare to hear England in this, presented in this way. And it's, you know, 
majority of England, you know, is quote unquote regional, right? The majority of England is made up of communities that's really, really elegantly described in your book. The other thing that I think is really interesting in your book is that it spans 60, 70 years. And along the way, it's punctuated by these major global and political milestones. So Jesse's sexual awakening uh, comes uh, on the September 11th, as the Twin Towers uh, come down, and through to Brexit as well. So why was the backdropping of the book against those global markers important for you? Well, again, my, my trajectory personally was different to Jesse's, but I wanted Jesse to, obviously we all know where we are, where we were and what we were doing, who we were with, um, when, uh, the, the, the story broke, um, of the September the 11th attacks. And I look back at my life and I kind of wonder whether I would have left the Jehovah's Witnesses if it wasn't for, um, an external situation happening, uh, that sort of caught me off guard and that I didn't sort of know, um, how to respond to and not know the way I should respond to it. Um, and I, I wanted to give Jesse a, a jolt and a shock. And I don't know, um, that it would have come without him seeing something like 9-11, something that was so completely out of his frame of reference in the home of a gay couple. Um, and that would have been his first experience of, um, of, of gay men, uh, first sort of time being in their company. And, I think that just would have blown his mind completely. And I think it would have, uh, just made him sort of see a completely different reality. And that would have been very much on his mind sort of five days later when he meets up with um, another brother in his congregation and just has a completely sort of different take on things. You know, phrases from South London. Um, he's moved up to the black country with his family. His dad's a doctor. He's got a job as, as a GP in, in a, in a black country surgery. And he doesn't really know why he's there, but actually in, 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 in the event has found, uh, cause he's dyslexic and likes to work with his hands. He's found a job as a fabricator. And so he's sort of, um, quite sort of relaxed and comfortable there. Um, but much more sexual than Jesse is used to from a Jehovah's Witness. And so you've got this kind of like cocktail, I suppose, of, 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 um, provocations to Jesse's sensibilities. And it just sort of um, makes it so much more, I suppose, appealing to the reader as well. If, you know, we can all, like I said, we can all identify with um, with 9-11 being this thing that we all remember, this thing that sort of sticks out to us, this thing that sort of provoked us, this thing that changed all of us. None of us were ever the same again after seeing 9-11. And I think the fact that Jesse saw the Twin Towers come down at the same time as seeing two men hold on to each other and affirm their love for one another, their need for one another, for, for comfort and support, um, I, th- I thought that it would just be a really, really great way to sort of show Jesse actually that the heteronormative uh, idea of love that he's been raised with isn't necessarily for him because of what he is inside and that it is okay that he will one day uh, find someone to love and to be loved by. Um, and so it was just uh, an, an interesting juxtaposition uh, as far as I was concerned, and hopefully it comes off. Mm, 
Yeah, it certainly does. And also, what you what you draw in Jesse as a character is is a, he's a kind of. I mean, you're rooting for him the whole way, and you're completely. I, I felt this great sense of protect of protectiveness towards him because you see someone who's yearning really, and he is yearning for this tenderness. And he is yearning for a kind of love that he's not getting from home and he's not getting from his faith. Um, and it's only when he comes out into his full sexuality and begins to explore that, do you see him yearning in another way. So there's something, there's a real bravery in the writing of this book. One, being able to reveal the inside of a faith like Jehovah's Witness, which we rarely uh, get to explore from those of us outside the faith. But also through this very intense, you know, sexual series of sexual experiences that Jesse has, especially as he enters the world of prostitution. So I'd love to know, there's a question I often ask artists and writers about how you prepared yourself in a way for that, especially the fact that you were a Jehovah's Witness yourself. How did, what did you have to do to prepare yourself to go, I'm going to be as honest as I can about this experience? Rainbow Milk was something I was challenged to write as a novel after spending sort of 10 years or more just writing sort of life writing, I suppose, for myself. So I'd spent 10 years just being absolutely honest about my experiences, um, how my upbringing, upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness um, and subsequent journey into sex work how that affected my mental state. I feel like, I mean, someone asked me yesterday, did you ever do therapy? And while there have been occasions that I probably should have done therapy, I'm probably alive today and I'm probably happy today because I've um, had access to, to language and I've always written and I've always been able to explain things to myself. You know, I can write very quickly and I can just ask myself a hundred questions. Um, I can sort of write about how I'm feeling and I can be absolutely honest. Um, there was one moment about sort of seven or eight years ago where I was kind of maybe going through quite a tough time and I sat at my laptop and I wrote for about 15 minutes, I am such and such, I am such and such, I am such and such. And it was this long, huge outpouring of, um, anger, frustration, um, upset fear and sort of self-loathing and all of these things but it just made me feel so much better to just be that honest about myself and so I guess when I'm sort of translating all of those feelings and processes into the um the art of fiction um I'm not thinking about an audience in particular I'm not thinking that I'm being courageous or being brave in front of anyone I'm only writing for myself um because you know it's that's the language that I've sort of created for myself, um, to, 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 to have myself as my own audience. I think Tony Martin said, um, you know, I don't write for an audience. I write for myself and I think I'm a good reader. Um, and I sort of take that from her really. But, um, you know, I mean, as you've said, you know, the, there are so few, um, instances of infection, of regionality, of um, Jehovah's Witness culture, of sex work from a black queer perspective, black male queer perspective. You know, these are all sort of, you know, pretty much almost firsts in British writing. So, you know, I have to just be honest. And it's not really, it's not even really, um, you know, in, in a sense, I've been preparing myself for it. Um, 
unwittingly, I guess, for over a decade. Um, but it has been couched in sort of self-care. I mean, the, the original reason for writing in the first place was to chart the, uh, the mental processes, emotional processes I went on from being just, you know, from being baptized at the age of 16. I was baptized at Wolverhampton Wonders Stadium, uh, Molyneux Stadium, um, in 1998. And it was the International Convention of Jehovah's Witnesses. There were over 23,000 people in attendance, you know, delegates from Nigeria, Norway, you know, all over the world, um, as well as the, um, the local district of congregations. Um, and I got baptized in a pool in front of all of these people on a bright, beautiful summer's day. And that's, where I was at 16 and I thought that that was going to be my future. I thought that I was going to be a Jehovah's Witness for my whole life and that I would, um, see Bible prophecies being fulfilled, et cetera, et cetera. A year later, I was disfellowshipped and thrown out on my ear and not allowed to communicate with or be communicated with by any Jehovah's Witness anymore. I'd lost my entire sort of center of gravity at the age of 17 and had to find uh, a new path. And then five years later, at the age of 22, I find myself um, living in London. I've had to quit drama school because I can't afford to pay my fees, because I've sustained, sustained uh, an injury in a sexual assault, because I'm uh, uh, a rent boy. And I'm like, well, how the hell did that happen over the course of six years? And it was only through writing that I was able to explain all of that myself and see what the processes were. And also to write a new path for myself going forward so that I wouldn't make the same sort of downward spiral of, of mistakes that, uh, that had brought me there. So yeah, writing Rainbow Milk, um, you know, I've, I've left a lot out. I haven't gone into, you know, it's not a primer for, uh, for what it is to be a Jehovah's Witness or a primer for what it is to be a sex worker. It's a fast narrative thread that in 350 pages takes in, as you said, like over 70 years of history, takes in, uh, so much of, of British society, of black British society, of, um, of cultural London, et cetera, et cetera. It does so much. And, you know, in order to sort of preserve this sort of speed of narrative and this sort of freshness, there are certain things that I had to leave out. Um, so in the end, it, you know, it's a, it was a joy to write this book. It was a joy to write this fiction. It was a joy to sort of create, um, a framework through which lots of subjects could be spoken about lightly, but profoundly enough so that they have a little bit of, of weight and gravity, but nothing with more weight or gravity than anything else. Well, that's what I hope to achieve anyway. Um, it's also it's also a really interesting ex- exploration of uh, black masculinity and of course black masculinity sexuality. You know, and I the thing that I really learned as a black woman reading this book is how tortured it is, uh, tortured it can be in terms of a space of desire, and also this idea of a kind of the counterfeit identities. You know, like so Jess is called. At one point, a black boy trying to be a white boy, trying to be a black boy by a group of Asian and white boys who are trying to be black boys. You know, so this kind of concept of this sort of layering of this performative, these performances that are going on. But also, you know, the kind of the deep insecurities that also uh, comprise the exploration of that, that identity. So I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit in terms of your kind of whether, again, that was a conscious uh, journey that you were taking in this book to explore black, black masculinity in a very particular way, or whether that was just part of Jesse's identity, therefore his journey. 
I think the latter, you know, it's always something that's going to be at the top of my, almost everything I say and do will be filtered through that tension. In terms of being a black male, looking in the mirror and seeing a black male, but not really fulfilling other people's ideas of what a black male should be. And that's something that I've lived through my whole life. You know, like I said earlier, grew up in a white working class area where the British National Party were, you know, it was a stronghold. Sandor was a stronghold for the BNP until sort of at the early 2000s. And I was sent to a secondary school. First of all, I was head boy at my primary school, but I, you know, despite, you know, despite it's a strange word, but, you know, being one of only two black boys in the whole year, you know, it was 60% white, 40% Asian, um, and then me and this other black boy. But I was chosen as head boy. And I think at that age, and it's, it, you know, I saw Stephen Queen's year three, and I've read in an interview that he's saying, you know, year three, when kids are sort of seven, eight years old, that's when they start to become aware of race and class and gender and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, being 10 years old and being, you know, being appointed head boy, you know, for me, you know, people could have said, you know, you're, not privileged or you're underprivileged because you're black. And I'd be like, well, actually I'm head boy. So, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But then my parents sent me to a secondary school that, uh, was failing miserably that had the sort of worst reputation for, um, expulsions, teenage pregnancies, you know, violence amongst students and violence against staff and, you know, the worst exam results in the whole borough of Sandwell, which is already a very troubled and very deprived area. Simply because our four other Jehovah's Witness kids were starting at the same time. So I had to sort of conquer a lot of, of, you know, racism, overt and covert, institutional, you know, from being, you know, top of the class at primary school, from being head boy, I was suddenly sort of seen as a black boy, a teenage black boy. Um, and because my parents had both grown up, um, in similar situations as well as, as second generation West Indian immigrants, for them, I feel now, and I'm aware now that they exhibited internalized racism in the way that they, uh, raised me. So both my parents are black. Um, the, um, adoptive father, white adoptive father character in Rainbow Milk is an invention by me to explore, um, sort of in a more sort of easily digestible way, uh, for readers in terms of explaining how difficult it is for a black child to be raised in this country, in this still majority white country, and that's still very majority white working class area, how difficult it is for a black child to be raised with a black male identity and to see and trust himself as a black man, especially when, like we've said, the education system prioritizes an exclusively white male idea of life. You know, all of the uh, literature I studied at GCSE level for English Shakespeare, um, Thomas Hardy, J.B. Priestley, Tennessee Williams, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, it, the poetry was all, you know, Seamus Heaney and Coleridge and Wordsworth and Byron and Shelley. You know, these are all pure, 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 pure dead white men, you know? So again, you know, you're just not sort of empowered as a black child to, to feel like you know, you have a legitimate place in life. And so you ingratiate yourself to whiteness and to white masculinity in particular. 
And Jesse also is obviously Jehovah's Witness. And all 10 elders in his congregation are white men. You know, whether they're bricklayers or whether they run a stationary firm or whether they're painter and decorator, they're still elders. And so as far as he, he's concerned, they're the intermediaries between uh, himself and God. And so he feels the need to, to ingratiate himself to them. He feels the need to, to, to want to become like them or to become one of them. And I think as he grows older and realizes that that's impossible, that he's never going to be a white man, um, the only way to sort of ingratiate himself is to become, is to be sexually attracted to them and to, and to be involved with them sexually. Um, and that sort of feeds back into the, the, the level of honesty, um, and explicitness in the sex scenes. You know, Jesse's not a normal, in inverted commas, person. You know, he's been through so many things. He stands to very unique intersection. And we've not seen, uh, sex like that before. Like we don't see in films or on television, young black men from that background having sex with older white men. It's just not something that we have the visual apparatus for. So it is necessary as it is necessary to sort of write, you know, about what it's like to be a waiter in a restaurant. Um, you know, we don't see that even. So, you know, it, it just sort of became very important to, to, to explore that in, in detail. But again, like I said at the top of this answer, um, this very long answer, that will be something that I will always be writing through, like this idea of black identity and how it is, or black masculine identity and how it is so often dictated to by the, the, you know, what bell hooks would say is the, the white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist, patriarchal lens. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a, it's interesting where Jesse ends up on that because it is, it's really uncomfortable following him because you can see what's happening. And, and black people who have grown up in this country on some level have been complicit in that because for all of the reasons that you say, we've had no choice but to be complicit in that. And, you, and, and you're very honest in the presentation of that. But it's quite interesting where he ends up when he goes to Somerset. Um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, he ends up at the house of Nicholas St. John, who's the editor of, um, of a character called Owen in the book. And I think at that point you see a match. This is where, this is for me, where I begin to see this maturation in Jesse in terms of um, having really honest conversations about his relationship to white men, but also the complexity of that. You know, there's a character who talks about uh, the, the rage and the anger that that can bring up in you. But then Jesse's honest and he says, yeah, but, you know, how can I hold both of these things? How can I, how can I hold my race and also hold my attraction, you know? And, and actually there's been a lot of love and care that I've had from white men in my life too so there's a kind of there's, a, there's something there's a wonderful kind of place i think that the book arrives at which is about going it's complex mm. you know exactly so I think that, um yeah. you know that's very very interesting for you know part of me thinks that jesse should fall in love with a black man at the end um and that that would be some sort of validation or uh some sort of i suppose that would be the hollywood resolution that Jesse, or like an ideal Hollywood resolution, that Jesse sort of comes to terms with his blackness and the way he demonstrates that is by entering into a loving relationship with a black man. I really wanted to do that, but then, honestly, I didn't know what else to do with, with 
the character of Owen once they've had, you know, Jesse and Owen have this um, long and sort of very romantic engagement, which comes to a, 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 you know, I don't want to sort of give anything away particularly, but uh, it comes to uh, a break and, and I just thought it was so sad to sort of leave it like that. So I sort of resolved it in the way that I resolved it. But I think what Jesse sort of achieves as um, a person who's now in his um, early to mid thirties is a sense of belonging within a community that is about art and literature and not necessarily about sexuality. I don't think Jesse would find more affirmation within an exclusively black queer environment than he does within uh, a mixed gender, mixed sexual orientation environment where everyone actually is creative and invested in, you know, their place in cultural history. Yeah. So whilst having probably a much more acute sense of dismay at white supremacy and, um, you know, the, the domination of white masculine culture that continues into the 21st century, whilst being very aware of that more so than ever, he's also much more aware as a grown man that it's important to feel loved. And that's what Jesse realizes at the end of the book. And that's what, you know, another, a black woman character tells him at the end of the book that it doesn't matter who you're with. It's whether you feel loved or not, whether you can love. And, um, and again, that I think that is, uh, that is the, the important thing. You know, we can all sort of read books and learn about, you know, we can all do the work in terms of learning about black history, learning about colonialism, sort of empowering ourselves as black people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the identity of our partner is as long as we feel loved. And I think that's what Jesse, that's the conclusion that Jesse comes to. And I think that's how he sort of resolves this, this pain, I suppose, that, he, that, that he's had to live through all his life, uh, based on, um, his racial and gender identity. And, and as a reader, I will, I'll happily let you know that for someone who was very, uh, felt very protective and worried for most of the book about Jesse. I didn't at the end. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I felt, I felt he was in a really, really, exactly the way that you describe a really loving place and the complexity of that loving place. Like you were saying, it's, it's cross gender, it's cross race, it's cross age. There's all kinds of people in there who have somehow offered him something that's real, you know? And so, um, yeah. It's it's definitely not a Hollywood ending. I mean, I've got a couple more questions. One one is one is about family because this is very much a book about family, actually. And there is a again, not to give any spoilers, but there is a there is a lovely return in, in the book um, to home to to home in some sense in returning back to the West Midlands. And I think it does, in a way, kind of counterpoint these two experiences of family, the kind of generous experience of his created family, but also how brutal the family that he came from uh, was uh, for him from his experience. And I, and I wondered about that. I felt like the character of the mother, particularly, who embodied this, this kind of abusive brutality. Um, and I wonder about... From my experience reading the book, there was a sense that I felt that some of the generosity given to the other characters 
wasn't necessarily giving particularly to her or that sense of home. So I wondered what you thought about that. Well, at the end of the the, the ending uh, was supposed to be Jesse returning to his parents' house uh, to show them the person that he's become, despite the way that they raised him. But I just knew that it wasn't going to end well. And, you know, there's something to be said, I think, for not automatically appeasing abusive people for sort of coming to a place. Like, I think Jesse comes to a place where he is happy, comfortable, confident, and feels loved. And so why would he go back and risk being rejected again? I just didn't want him to do that. I didn't want to go through that as a writer. I didn't want to write that down. I didn't want to, because, you know, I, I just felt that the conclusion would be inevitable. One thing I didn't want to do with Jesse is to make him sort of like rich and successful and, you know, having done all this stuff. He still works in a restaurant, albeit a nice, good restaurant, you know, but he's, you know, he's comfortable. Like he shares a tiny flat with his partner with no air conditioning that's kind of, you know, fetidly hot, almost like today in the summertime. You know, it's kind of, it's not the sort of rags to riches story necessarily. Um, but inside the person that he feels that he is is just someone who is successful because they've found love and because they have found purpose and because they are now sort of thinking creatively and they've shaken off the shackles of of this kind of very strict religious upbringing that was so hypocritical um to his finding and he you know i think he wanted to go home to just kind of maybe reconcile with them but then i think he probably thinks if they didn't want me before, or if they didn't think I was good enough before, why should they now? And I don't want people to sort of, I didn't want to legitimize this idea that people needed to become rich and successful in order to gain their parents' approval or the, the approval of any, uh, imported people from, from their, from their youth. Um, because it's really the only sort of validation that one needs is in oneself. Um, and in, in, in the minds and hearts of those who love him and who he loves. So, yeah, I just don't, I, I don't feel in life that we should be appeasing people who have abused us and people who have told us that we're not good enough because when we, you know, because we are good now, because we are good enough now. I don't think people who have told us that we're not good enough deserve that, um, that validation from us. And so, I mean, it's, I felt bad about writing what we would sort of, in one sense, think of as a stereotype, a black female stereotype. Um, so often we see in fiction and in films, etc., um, black women portrayed as bad mothers, as, um, as abusive, as emotionally abusive and manipulative, etc. Uh, and that's exactly what I've done. And I'm very, very sorry. Um, that that's the case, but that is the experience that I've had. That is the, that is the experience that Jesse had. And so we need to look beyond the sort of fact of how this person is behaving and actually look at the reasons why the, that person is behaving like that. Um, and I haven't been explicit about it in Rainbow but you know, I think that the inference is there that the world in which we live in that is so, uh, what's the word? Disdainful. Of the black female experience generally can cause, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to mansplain here, but can cause, um, black women to internalize that misogynoir 
and to sort of to, to, to behave in a way that is abusive and irresponsible. So I can't forgive my mother. I can't allow Jesse to forgive his mother until she recognizes that. And that's something I feel that I've been privileged to recognize in terms of being able to give myself a wide education and to, 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 to read a lot and to invest myself in that. That's not something that, that my mother's been able to do. And indeed, being a, a Jehovah's Witness has allowed her to, to forget about all of that. And it's, it's again, very, very easy for, for my parents and for Jesse's parents to turn around and say, well, you, you know, were raised in what they call the truth. Uh, and you, decided to reject that and live your own life. And, you know, that's your choice. It's the wrong choice. You know, we, we, we raised you with the privilege of knowing the truth, but you turned your back on it. Um, and so there's absolutely nothing that I can say to change their mind. Nothing. You know, it doesn't matter how um, happy I am or how in love I am or how successful I am. I, I'm still, until I come back to Jehovah, um, I'm still living against the principles that I've been privileged to have been raised in. And so it's just, you know, for want of a better phrase, it's just bad for, for my mental health. And I just won't sort of engage myself in that conversation. And so I didn't want Jesse to go through that either. I, I think that felt right, actually. It felt right at the end of the novel that, that he did, again, that would have been the Hollywood ending. It, it felt right that he didn't take that journey back to his parents' house, for sure. And I think where where there, there is a kind of joyous and soothing uh and a cathartic kind of re- reunion at the end of the novel that, that isn't that so my final question unfortunately because i'm loving this conversation is um you know this has been already a celebrated uh debut novel and we're all very excited as to what might come next do you know what i think being a black british writer novelist now I think the possibilities are endless um, because so much of our history has been written by other people. I'm really excited about uh, the second year of my MA, which uh, starts in October. I'm studying the MA in Black British Writing at Goldsmiths, um, first course of its kind in the UK. And I'm just learning so much about authors I've never heard of before, people like S.I. Martin. And you know, I'd never even heard of Buciema Chatto before. And I, you know, I'm in love with her now. There's, there's just so much to learn from. And I think I'd be very, very interested in writing about the Black British experience of the Black British experience. Because, you know, we've been here as, um, post Windrush Black British people for up to 70 years. But then you've got a generation before that, you know, people like CLR James and Una Marson who came over here in, in the 1930s and were sort of working for the BBC and starting Caribbean Voices and sort of really kind of entering into a dialogue with one another that then inspired the writing of the, the Windrush generation. And I found out recently that um, during the what we call Windrush generation, so sort of late 40s to early 70s, over 70 books were written by Afro-Caribbean authors that were published here in the UK. Um, so I'm just very, very interested in, um, in, you know, that sort of the, 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 the mid to late 20th century, um, literary world, uh, black literary world in this country. And I don't know where that's going yet. I sort of have ideas for characters and even a family. Um, but what, um, form that will take, I don't know. It's just very, very early days. 
really, really, really exciting. And it's, it is really exciting, Paul, I think, to have this conversation with you and to know you're in the world, to know you're making work from someone who's a second generation uh, Caribbean person, Caribbean British person, because I think there is something about how this story, this story progresses, how our story progresses here. And I think it feels like it's in really, really safe hands with you. So I'm really, really happy for that. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, connect with us today. Us now, like, you know, this, this, you know, Black British writing, I think, is in a, in a very, very good place right now. You know, we've got um, the Black Writers Guild um, that's just started. And, you know, that's a huge coterie of over 200 um, writers and uh, uh, literature professionals all of whom are dead set on increasing that number manifold and yeah just creating much more space for ourselves to to reach audiences and to to write about black british life and culture and just to write about anything that we want but as black writers um yes. and i think that's um incredibly exciting so i think audience members should put their seatbelts on and get ready for an amazing journey um into um Black British cultural history being made. Definitely. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Gaylene. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review and a rating. Find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Beham Lit Fest. And take a look at the rest of this year's digital programme on our website at www birminghamliteraturefestival.org You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts. Until then, happy reading. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is curated by Chantal Edwards and produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.